Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning again. We're back for the second hour of the show. Let's go to the phones and joining us, one of our favorite contributors, and we'll see how he's dealing with the snow. He kind of lives up in the foothills there. So, Mr. Nate Zelinski, did you get a little snow last night? Holy cow. You know, Terry, uh, it's kind of one of these catch-22s because... I have been hitting the uh, the guide world uh, very hard. I, I think I'm half my age again. So I've done doubles for, uh, I think, eight days straight. But today I actually had a cancellation just because uh, of the snow. So uh, it's a nice break, but no relaxing. We're moving a lot of snow. I probably got, I don't know, 24 to 28 inches here at my house in Conifer. So, yeah, lot, lots of snow for sure. <laughs> well, you know, and it's amazing how different it was around the area. DIA only got a couple inches. Up where I live in Fort Collins, Karen and I flew in last night, and we weren't 100% sure we were going to get in and get home. But when we got up here, there's no snow on the ground at my place. It rained. So it really was a lot of tree damage up there. Were the trees leaved out there yet? They are. They're just started leaving out. So, yeah, we had uh, multiple power outages last night, this morning, but they've done a great job of getting the power back on. But, yeah, a lot of, a lot of broken trees and just kind of that messy, heavy snow. The roads haven't been bad, which is nice. Uh, you know, the roads were warm enough, but uh, anything that was able to cool, uh, you know, decks, driveways, things like that have been pretty nasty. But, uh, no, lots of snow. And um, I hate to say it because I'm complaining about it, but but we need it. Um, you know, the fire thing and everything else, but I'll tell you, uh, obviously I'm a little selfish towards our fisheries. Spinney has been going through uh, kind of a, a weird spring so far. Um, over the last week or so, there's only been about 140 to 160 CFS coming in and anywhere between three and 400 leaving. So Spinney has been dropping um, extremely quick to the point where we've been very nervous about losing the boating access. Um, and it's also made fishing kind of a little funky with that lowering water. So uh, very excited to see some moisture in the air, hopefully get the flows back up to kind of get spinny back to where it should be uh for a typical may so so definitely excited to see moisture for sure yeah we definitely needed the water we've gone through a very tough spot you mentioned the fire danger a lot of low reservoirs although i keep hearing uh that there's still quite a bit of snow in the mountains i thought we might have lost a lot of that moisture but i know up in the steamboat springs area they're just the the flows are just on fire they're going to be it got warm there and it just rivers are high i'm hearing the colorado's getting a little high so hopefully we'll see that flat drainage uh come up too and we'll see those lakes and rivers flow and we'll fill our reservoirs and capture some water let's talk about the warm water species a little bit you guys fish chatfield and cherry creek a lot and you know we always talk about cold fronts shutting down fishing uh things that can happen i was talking to uh Austin Parr earlier about how, you know, there was a tournament going on and somebody, no matter how tough the conditions are, somebody always finds a way to catch them. So what's your experience now? Do you think going to be, is this cold front going to shut down the Metro fisheries or is it just going to change it? And then how long before they get back on track? 
You know, Terry, I don't think we're going to see any effects, to be totally honest with you. You know, there's always a turning point in the spring and fall, and it's all water temperature dictated. So when your fish are in a pre-spawn in March, you know, so they're temperamental due to spawn material, the water's cold, you know, any swing, hot or cold, changes it. Um, Post-spawn, same thing. You know, they're they're wanting to be shallow, they're wanting to feed heavy, but you get a, a major swing, and they're just vulnerable, and it changes. It. We are now in our summer patterns at both fisheries, Chatfield and Cherry Creek. Um, so the fish are on structure. We're doing the live bait thing. We're doing the jig thing. Our water is warm enough um, that, you know, we were having high number days. So we're doing 60 fish a day at Creek. We're doing 60 to 80 fish a day at Chatfield. This storm front like this, it might break it down to, you know, maybe we're having 30, 40 fish days. So we will definitely see a decrease in our catch rate, but not to the point where we're not going to change tactics. We're not going to change up hardly anything just because our water is now stable enough and just warm enough to where it's not going to have as much of an effect. Once your fish get going on those patterns, um, they're, they're pretty, you know, resilient against these type storms. Cause even though it's cold, it's not crazy cold. And even though you got moisture, it's nothing crazy. When the fish are in four five, six feet of water and you get a cold rain, cold snow, it'll cool that temperature and it'll make those fish abandon. These fish are on structure. You know, they're in eight, 10, 12 feet on the shallow side. They're in 16, 18 foot on the deep side those water columns don't get as affected as much. Um, I know Matt fished through the storm yesterday. Uh, I believe Dustin's out this morning. Um, so, so far it, it hasn't seen major effects of that. So again, you're going to see a, a slight, you know, maybe overall percentage of your catch, but things are good. And to the anglers that are out there fishing today or fishing tomorrow, the biggest things that we talk about is spoon feed your fish. So if you're out there and you are seeing any sort of change, you know, if you're live bait rigging, so let's just say you're pulling a, a revolve hook or that slow death technique and you're, you know, dragging that live bait or that crawler at 0.9 miles an hour. Maybe you, you take away the action of that slow death hook or that revolve hook and you go with a single hook in a chunk of a night crawler or a single hook in a leech. And instead of going 0.9 miles an hour, go 0.5, 0.6. So just slow it down a hair to cater to the fish um, and that bite will pick right back up. Same thing if you're jigging. Uh, instead of doing a really big hop or a faster jig stroke, just slow it down a little bit. Um, and again, the fish aren't going to move in that situation, so we're excited about that. What about... Um, the shad. There's a fairly substantial shad population of both lakes, Cherry Creek, more than Chatfield. Have you seen the shad starting to move into spawn, or where are they at in the process? Yeah, it would, I have not seen it at Chatfield yet, but I have seen the shad coming up shallower at Cherry Creek. Um, you know, especially I did a, a lot of kind of research, we'll call it. Uh, within the last week, they're just driving around, and, and we definitely saw a lot of shad up shallow. Um, so, so that's definitely going. But again, as far as the shad that the walleyes are feeding on you, we're seeing mature shad, you know, those 10, 12, 14-inch shad up in that shallow water. Uh, we're not seeing the young shad up there. So that's the nice thing why this, you know, cold front is not affecting it drastically. If the if the shad were shallow and your walleye were shallow, um, obviously colder water, those shad will retreat, and your walleyes will chase them. That's what affects it. But the, the young shad... The shad that the walleyes are currently feeding on, um, you know, last year's young in those walleyes, they're in deeper water. So, so things are looking good. Uh, so, again, we're not seeing a, a huge effect on those type things. Um, the one thing that I will say, the fish are deep enough now to where you can trust your electronics. We talk about that because in the spring when the walleyes are in 
four, five, six feet of water, you know, if you're good with your side imaging, you'll see them. If you have one of the live units of, of any of the brands, you, you can kind of cast your, your, you know, sonar up there and you can see those fish. Um, but now that they're deeper, you can trust it. You can drive over these fish in 10, 12, 14 feet of water and you can see them on your graph. So now is the time to have faith in your electronics. So go out there. If you're not seeing fish on the graph, Keep moving until you see fish on your graph um, and then target those fish. And honestly, Terry, uh, that's the same case for spinny. I, I definitely I want to spend a little bit of time talking about spinny because it has been a different spring up there due to those water levels. Um, so we're putting a lot of faith in our electronics uh, at spinny right now. Again, we've watched the water drop um, in the last two weeks probably almost six vertical feet, five to six vertical feet. Um, so seeing a massive water level drop uh, and these fish came out of spawn. So they go shallow to spawn. They retreat to deeper water to post spawn, usually 12, 14 feet. Um, and with the water dropping, those fish are kind of spread out. So, this time of year, Terry, I do a lot of my morning trips or still water fly fishing, afternoon trips, uh, or conventional tackle, or throwing spoons, or throwing tube jigs. Um, if you have a technique that is covering water, such as casting a spoon, casting a jerkbait, casting a, a tube jig and swimming it, um, those techniques are catching fish. Not so much for the fact of the technique, but the fact that you're covering water. Um, when we've been doing our still water fly trips, obviously we're anchored, we're sitting very still, uh, fishing indicators with midges. That bite has been tougher. Uh, the other day I had to move around 11 to 12 times uh, before I found some fish. Um, once you find them and you get into them, uh, you are having an amazing day. But I'll tell you what, if you're not seeing them on the graph and you're not finding fish, keep moving. It's not that they're not biting. It's simply that the fish are not there. Um, and Terry, I got to say that a typical spinny day, you know, if I go anywhere on the north half of the reservoir and, you know, 10 to 14 feet of water in May, um, I'm usually having an epic fly fishing day. This year, we're really having to put a lot of work into it to find those fish. The fish are grouped up, um, but they're moving around a lot due to that lower water. So just to all the anglers up there, I know I've been getting emails and texts and talking to people at the lake about their frustrations and what's going on. Um, the biggest thing is, again, that that population of those big rainbows those 20 to 25 inch fish they are grouped up they are together but we are very much treating them like a like a walleye for example we are driving around graphing for fish we're setting up on a spot we're only giving it 10 15 minutes if we're not seeing activity not seeing fish we are moving on um so a lot of moving around and again just like the walleye trust your electronics and bounce if you have to you know cover a ton of water until you locate fish and that's the biggest key to success as far as catching them. What about the pike then, Spinny? What do you see in there? The pike are fantastic, Terry. Uh, they're in post-spawn. We talk about this all the time. You know, when you have a, a well-fed fishery, even just like Colorado in general, um, our pike thrive. And if the pike have a ton of food, are feeding heavy, obviously it's a little bit harder to catch them when they're full. But right now in a post-spawn state, they're gorging themselves. So they are feeding heavy. Uh, so we're excited about that. Those pike are in 12 to 16 feet of water, and they've been lately, this at least this last week, six to 10 feet below the surface. So 12, 16, 18 feet of water overall, uh, six to 10 below the surface, 
big stick baits, big jerk baits. We are catching a lot of pike. They move with that water column very easily. They don't get panicked like the trout. The trout wait until their water level changes, and then they kind of, you know, they, they bug out, and they, they worry, and they get nervous, and they really cruise hard. The pike are like a wallet. They just slowly slide as that water decreases. So the water increases, they slowly slide up. Uh, water decreases, they just slowly slide with us. So the pike has been uh, very traditional spring. So doing very well with that. And I tell you, um, we've seen uh, just in our boats, tight line boats, we've seen six tiger muskie out of spinny uh, just this last week. Uh, those fish are ranging 32 to 37 inches, uh, had one bigger fish chase. So we're seeing a ton of pike. We're seeing some tigers that came down from Antero. Um, so it, it's been good on the predator side at spinny uh, for sure. And honestly, Terry, those fish are in that post spawn on the pike side uh, are, are resilient to this weather. So the cold, nasty wind snow days, uh, those pike thrive in those conditions where when the trout, you know, it affects the, the midge hatch um, and some of the species get kind of worrisome in that. Um, if you are fishing in these cold fronts, I know we have rain this week, um, the predators are the way to go. Targeted lake trout has been epic in these nasty weather conditions. Big pike has been pretty epic in these weather conditions. So uh, if you are worried about the weather changing your bite, uh, think about going predator fishing. Again, the big pike, the big lakers, they love it and they're thriving. One quick question. When I said on the on the big pike, you're using a lot of big stick baits, jerk bait type things. Are you totally using suspending ones or some that dive down and suspend? What kind of exact presentation you know, are you using? So there? exact presentations, if we're casting, it's all about suspended baits. Uh, our number one go-to is an HJ-14 Husky Jerk. There's no secrets. We'll tell you everything. Um, the Husky Jerks are any larger 6 to 8 inch uh, suspended jerk baits on the casting side are doing very well. Not so much that we need the pause. We just need those baits to achieve that depth. And if you slow down those floating baits, obviously they come up. Uh, if we're able to troll, we're doing a lot of trolling at Spinny right now, and we're using floating baits simply for the fact that we're maintaining consistent speed so those baits achieve the depth that we're looking for. We can get them down 6 to 10 feet, um, and we can hold them there just by constant movement. Uh, so we're doing that. So we don't really have a preference um, of floating versus spinning. It's strictly about the strike zone. Casting, uh, those suspending baits, are, are we're able to keep them in that strike zone long longer uh and trolling it doesn't matter we're able to keep them in that strike zone um so really it's not the trolling aspect that we like trolling it's not the trolling aspect that we you know we we thrive on that technique it's simply for the fact that trolling allows us to get any bait suspending or floating down to the strike zone of that six to ten feet and hold it there uh and being in the strike zone like any fish that's always going to help you catch more fish at the end of the day all right my friend we are out of time if people want more information how do they find you you know, you can always go to our Facebook page, Tightline Outdoors, uh, as well as our uh, website. But I got to say that right now, all of us are posting daily. We have never been this consistent on Facebook. We had a ton of people reach out to us about a month ago and say they love our fishing reports. So every day now, we are posting tips. Uh, updates, things like that. So if you want some unbelievable information, at least on the bodies of water that we guide on, uh, go to our Facebook page. We're doing a ton of content. We do have catch rate this coming Wednesday. We're excited about that. Uh, we got some great things happening. So the the kind of theme this week is bringing somebody new to catch rate. So if you've never been to catch rate before, uh, this is the week to do it. We got some cool extra prizes for those. Uh, but yeah, everything's happening. So again, think about uh, catch rate this Wednesday at Chatfield. 4 to 8 p.m. Uh, you register between 3 and 4. It's only $20 per species. We're feeding everybody dinner and drinks. Uh, so make sure you check out Catch Rate and also just go to our Facebook page for all the latest and all the updates and all the bodies of water that we guide on. 
All right, my friend. We'll talk to you next week. Stay we'll warm. Thank you. Right. Nate, Nate Zielinski, great, uh, great resource. We're going to take a quick time out and we come back. We're going to talk to the folks at Jackson. We're going to talk about tent camping. Doesn't seem like good camping weather today, but it's right around the corner. All that and more coming up on Terry Wisham Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. And speaking of Jack's, joining us from the Jack's in West Loveland is Logan Belmont. Good morning, Logan. Morning, Terry. How's it going? It's going okay. We kind of dodged the bullet up here at my place, out there at the edge of Loveland. Did you get a little more snow, or are you okay? Uh, you know... It's not so bad here at the store. Uh, I do live out more in the foothills by Carter Lake, and um, it it looked like something you would see in December, January-ish. So <laughs> We need the moisture, which, as we always say, and we really do. It was getting dry. Now, we're going to talk oh, yeah. tent camping. You know, we're going to talk tent camping, and people may look out their window today and say, I don't want to be out in a tent. But, you know, in all honesty, you can tent camp in this kind of weather and be very comfortable. And that's something I want to ask you about that when we were talking earlier, we didn't. And that's uh, all season tents and stuff. But tent camping, you know, we've had so many people getting outdoors. They want to enjoy the outdoors. We have a lot of tent camping availability in Colorado, not only your typical campsites, at parks, but we have a lot of walk-in access camping, distributed camping throughout the public lands, and it can be really enjoyable, and you can drive up and camp, or you can hike back in. So there's lots of opportunity, but I think a lot of people just don't know where to get started. So if I came into the Jacks, which you have a great selection of tents, and I said, hey, I want to get started camping, what, what, what would you do? What would you ask me? Well, you know, Terry, generally the first three questions I ask people in regards to actually both sleeping bags and tents is generally what their experience level, what kind of their intent is um, to get an idea of where they're coming from, what they're trying to achieve, uh, as well as like what their price range is. I don't want to like have somebody be, oh, hey, I'm a car camping and be like, oh, well, here's here's a really expensive tent that'll fill all your needs and you may not use it to its full extent. You know, if there's something else that would fit their budget, I try and best to match that, uh, as well as their needs. Um, I think one thing uh, that comes to mind is generally we'll have a lot of people that will come in who are like, hey, I've got a son that just joined, like, the Boy Scout program or some summer adventure thing. New to camping, don't really have a ton of experience. We're kind of on a budget. Um, generally I try to fit them out with something that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg, if you will. Um, something that, you know, in the Boy Scout program, typically people in there, I want to say for like four or five years. Um, and so I want to get them something that will cover those years. It's not going to be something extremely fancy, but I'm not going to try and get them something really, really low quality. I think Kelty to me is a brand that I think is a really good middle ground there. It's really high quality stuff. Um, but it's not going to be crazy expensive. Um, so it's something where if a Boy Scout or somebody that's new to camping was like, hey, I want to try this out, it's a good one, one to start out with uh, in a couple of years. Well, again, like with Boy Scouts, once they, they finish that program or an adventure group of whatever kind, they can go, hey, I really like this. I want something better. The options are there. Um, if they get out of that kind of stuff and like, you know, camping really isn't my thing, then they didn't just drop a couple thousand dollars onto something either. Um yeah, that Those sounds like a great... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that's generally just where I start out. 
Um, cause there's a bunch of different types of camping. Personally, I've been into hammock camping for years. Um, so I actually just recently bought a tent cause I'm trying to get back into that myself. What about, what's the biggest mistake people make when they buy a tent? You and I were talking and you said they don't, you know, they, they know what they want to use it for, but what do you think they, where do they make the biggest mistake? Uh, I think a lot of people will tend to try and get as much as they can uh, feature-wise. Uh, as, as far as, like, the price and stuff, people will generally want something that's, like, you know, as light as possible, has all these cool features, can withstand hurricane winds. Like, they'll, they'll go out the wazoo without those kind of thing, with those kind of things, but not realize, okay, that typically dictates how expensive a tent is. Um, so a lot of people tend to try and find, like, the best of everything, but have a budget mindset of something that's a little more um, on the friendlier side, I, would, I, I guess is one way of putting it. What, what, if I'm looking for a tent now, what about the size of the tent? How important is that? Yeah, so um, for me personally, I like to tell people, you know, a two-person tent, uh, you know, if, let, let's say you and I were looking for a tent and we're going to go out to like Red Feather or something out in the, in, in the Rocky Mountains. Um, Two-person tent would get us by. We would be pretty snug next to each other. I generally would recommend for people who are looking for a two-person tent for two people to try and look. If you're comfortable next to each other, a two-person would work. But maybe a three-person gives you a little extra room. Uh, it just gives you room to spread out and those type of things. Do you Can you go to a three-person? Say you're hiking back in. Can you go to a three-person without adding a lot of weight? So actually one of the benefits of having two people is three-person tents can add a little bit of weight or a lot more weight than a two-person. But between, so again, if we're going with the example of, of you and I, Terry, going out camping, we could split. A lot of people will tend to just, you have that one bag that the tent came in, you throw everything in there, one person carries it. You can actually split the weight and put, like, the body of the tent in my pack, and you could carry the poles. So now that, let's say, a three-pound tent now is a pound and a half for each of us, which would make it extremely light, but you'd still have the benefit of a three-person tent. Okay, and if I'm car camping, I don't have to worry about the weight so much, but it's just the budget and the size of the tent. Um, what about seasons? Now, we're looking... A lot of people probably planned a camping trip for this weekend. Now, a lot of them probably canceled it. But when I buy a tent for camping in Colorado, do you ask them, are you just going to camp in the summer? Are you going to camp in the winter, too? Is there a different tent you need? Or do you recommend they get something that's more seasonal because they could get caught in the weather? Yeah, so generally that's part of one of the things I ask when I'm trying to get an idea of what their experience, what their use for the tents are. Um, a lot of people typically are your summer camping um, generally, I would point them towards a lot of the three-season uh, three tents. Um, those are generally the ones that have a lot of mesh to them. They're typically a little lighter, if not a lot lighter, than your four-seasons. Uh, the main things that make a four-season a four-season tent is generally they're stronger. They're designed to where if you got snowed on, the tent poles aren't going to bend, break. It won't really, like, lose its shape. Three-person tents, or three-season tents, sorry, um generally have we not necessarily weaker but lighter poles and are designed with the intent of hey you're going to be uh, above tree line uh, generally or like where you're going to get snowed on four season tents are, are more i guess you could say bomb proof um hold up to the weather better uh can hold in a little more heat uh generally their one weakness uh with a lot of four seasons can be condensation 
Uh, although that's one of those things where you can find certain features on a tent that can help overcome that issue. Now, what about the price range of the tents? Am I, do I have to spend a ton of money if I want to just get started? You talked about working with people's budgets. Where do price tents start? And I suppose you can go up to spend as much as you want. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like I said, there's there's so many different types of camping out there. I personally have done hammock camping. People, they make tents that go on top of your car. Um, if we're just looking at, like, round tents, um, you know, I think, uh, again, Kelty, I think, is a really good brand, and they hit a certain price point, but they have a ton of features, uh, and they, they really hit a good medium there of, of uh, the two areas. Generally, you can get one of those tents for a couple hundred dollars, if that. Um, Big Agnes would be more of a brand that uh, Jax carries that's a very high-end brand. I mean, I think I have a tent uh, that's like a two- or three-person tent that's under three pounds. It's an extremely light tent, but it's also like a four or $500 tent. Um, so if you're new to camping, that's not what I'm going to try and, like, talk you into buying or being like, hey, this is for you, just because that might be a little excessive for somebody that's just starting out. Last question. How is the inventory? We know over the last few years, supply chain issues have made buying outdoor equipment very difficult. Is Jack's well stocked with tents? Yeah, we're doing pretty good. Um, there are a few brands that we've struggled with getting in, um, but that's just, uh, I know aluminum can be kind of challenging for a few people. Um, but as far as like the brands that I've mentioned, Kelty, Big Agnes, North Face, uh, MSR, um, we have a ton of their tents. Uh, so there's there's type, definitely a ton of options, anything from your one person, about a pound and a half tent to your eight person family size thing um, as well. All right, my friend, we are out of time, but great information. You're at the Loveland West store. If people want to come in and talk to you, which is the one that's furthest towards the foothills going up in the canyon. Used to be a Kmart, big uh, Jack store there, but I'm sure the tents are available at all the Jack's outdoor gear stores. Uh, Logan, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Terry, and uh, have a good rest of your week. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Logan from Jack's Outdoor Gear. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones. Joining us, probably our longest contributor has been contributing to the show on a regular basis for I think since I was a teenager Chad Lachan good morning Chad <laughs> hey good morning Terry that was a while ago I think it has been a time but we were talking about that the other day I think it goes back to like 2005 or something like that it goes back a ways I know that that's for sure so you've been uh yeah. This means we've both been around a while. <laughs> yeah, they had not got rid of us yet. <laughs> no. Well, you know, before we even get started, uh, you live, of course, in the Fort Collins area, too, as I do, but you live out by Horsetooth. Did you get much snow by the lake? Uh, no, sir. We really didn't. We got um, maybe, you know, a half inch on the cold surfaces, like grass and stuff like that, and it's mostly melting off right now. Uh, it's actually a surprisingly nice morning, and... Uh, I think it's going to end up being a pretty good day. We did get some cold rain. I'm sure it's going to beat the fishing back just a little bit because we had significant cold rain most of the afternoon yesterday and last night. But uh, but not too bad, all things considered. And fishing's been pretty good all the way around for just about everything that swims. So uh, it's a good time of year around here. 
Well, you know, speaking of, there's one place where it gets a little more difficult this time of the year, and that's our rivers in Colorado. Um, they tend to get some pretty high flows. Not that they're unfishable. Some are, but most aren't. They can find a way, but it's difficult. And you want to talk about the fly anglers who maybe don't want to try to manipulate or to work those high, muddy waters. There's some other alternatives, aren't there? Well, yeah, and, and the other possibility might even be, just, hey, I live in town. I don't have time to go drive all the way up the river, and i got two hours to kill. Uh, you know, maybe I'll go hit a pond around here. But, I, I, you know, I just got back from a long road trip to Kansas. We were doing some fly fishing for warm water species out there, and I thought we'd talk about it uh, just a little bit because the thing this time of year, if you're not a regular warm water fisherman, if you're, you know, you're, you're more consistently a trout guy, this is the time of year to address the warm water fish, as you know, because there's a very high percentage of them that are really shallow and they're on the banks. So the bluegills, the crappies, the bass are all running on the banks uh, right now because they're starting to think about their spawn phase, and uh, and that makes them within reach of fly guys without any specialized gear or anything like that. And you probably even have the flies you need already. If you're much of a trout guy, you probably have uh, some flies that you would need to catch any of those species. And I just, it's a nice mix-up from the trout as well. And as you know, Terry, I don't do a tremendous amount of fly fishing, although I've done it since I was a little kid. But I had a blast out in Kansas, you know, catching bass. We've got three species of bass and crappie on the fly rods without any ever even changing flies. So it's a, it's a fun, fun deal. And like I said, you probably already have the tackle. Well, and one of the things I find that a lot of fly anglers are hesitant to fish still water. I used to do a, a sports show presentation just on still water with a fly rod. Because a lot of them, as you said, are used to fishing trout and they're used to fishing rivers. Well, the river, they read the river, it kind of tells them where the fish are, and then they use the drift of the current to make the presentation. So they get a little out of their element in still water. They're not sure where the fish are, and they're not sure what they should do presentation-wise. Well, yeah, absolutely, because there's no there's no movement in the system. It's, it's less dynamic, and so... What I'm going to tell people is don't try to read the current like you would normally do. Instead, try to read the cover or the weeds, the grass. You're, you're, the way to catch them is to read the, the vegetation in the ponds uh, from from the cattails to the various elodia grass and other sorts of grass that you'll see growing in the ponds, aquatic vegetation. You're looking for the greenest stuff, the healthy stuff. This time of year, I'm looking for anything with a hard gravel bottom as opposed to a mud bottom if possible. So a lot of the ponds are gravel quarries, reclaimed gravel quarries, and they'll have certain areas of them that are more gravelly than others. That's something I'm going to look for. I'm also going to look for flat banks right now as opposed to steep banks because, again, all those fish are coming in shallow. They're looking for a flatter bank. So uh, even if you're going to come to the bigger reservoir like Horsetooth and fly fish for smallies, which would be very easy right now, again, you're still looking for flatter banks. You're not looking for steep stuff. So instead of reading the current, you've got to read the terrain and the cover that you're dealing with. The good thing is you're not trying to necessarily match a hatch, so you don't have to know the bugs or anything like that. If you want the easy answer for bass right now, get the biggest woolly bugger you have out, the biggest one. I don't care what size it is. Get the biggest one you got. I don't care if it's green, brown, or black. Get the biggest one you got and throw it around the weed lines on flat banks, throw it around the, the freshly forming vegetation, and strip it back in just a slow, even strip. Just keep stripping it back. Let it settle. Strip it back. You're going to be amazed at how many bass you'll catch doing that. 
And it's not about matching anything per se. As you know, Terry, they're named for the size of their mouth, not the size of their brain. So if it looks edible at this time of year, they're more or less likely going to go ahead and get it because it's just what they do, you know. And you oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say you made a great point about stripping it back slowly, let it undulate. The one thing I would say to fly fishermen fishing for bass is visualize that presentation. The river's not the lake's not going to make it come alive. You have to make it look alive. And it doesn't take a ton of movement, a lot less than you think, but just visualize it. Yeah, absolutely. And marabou helps with that. That's why I chose a woolly bugger as an all-around, you know, because first of all, everyone has one. And second of all, it's got a little bit of marabou on it. So that marabou, even if it's just settling down into the water column, a little conehead woolly bugger, like you can buy a sportsman's like a dollar, uh, that thing will sink. And as it sinks, that marabou will fluff around and, and look really, you know, really alive in the water. And it works really good. If you have clouds or minnows, those are excellent call as well. You can strip one of those around. It'll sink a little faster. Um, but again, it's not really about a secret flyer or anything else. It's just to give them a mouthful. And I will say this, if you're a tra- guys think big get the biggest fly you got because even a 10 inch bass i caught a bass the other day that was like 14 inches long it had a five inch long shad stuck on its gullet so you they want a big bite so don't go thinking oh i need a small fly for them now if you're going to go target the bluegills uh that are up shallow right now which is super fun on a fly rod in that case i want like a number 12 like a soft tackle like a partridge soft tackle or some sort of a generic mayfly nib in like maybe a, anywhere between about a, a 10 and a 14 and uh and in that case a natural color throw it out over the flat banks so anywhere you see any sign of those fish and strip it and let it settle and strip it and let it settle and as it settles the bluegills will swim over and suck that thing right up I do. I would recommend doing it on fluorocarbon leaders if you have them. The leader will help pull the fluorocarbon tippet will help pull the fly down a little bit in the water column, which will help you out as opposed to adding weight, which I'm not a fan of in still water. Uh, if you can use a fluorocarbon leader, that's great. But again, don't outthink the leader. I don't need a nine foot you know leader with a perfect tippet and all that. You can literally use a straight leader without even taper to it, which is what we were doing. It had a, it had a butt section and a tippet, and that's it. Uh, when we were out, out east, and it's like six feet long. And uh, it, these fish are not going to be particularly line-shy. The bluegills will be a little bit more so, but the crappies and the bass won't be line-shy at all. So it's really more about getting something in front of them and not spooking them. The only thing you can really do wrong is to line them. Bluegills will be a little bit line-shy at times, but uh, in terms of the fly line over their head. But otherwise, it's really fairly easy to do. And also, I'll throw this out here, one, one thing. The thing I like most about fly fishing is fly casting. And a lot of us are used to nymphing in the rivers, and there's no real fly casting involved with that. But in the bass pond or bluegill pond, you can stretch out and get some real loops going and uh, and practice some of your actual casting and double hauling, things like that. And it's excellent practice if you're going somewhere like maybe, for instance, we're going to Alaska later this year to fly fish for pike. And it's really good practice to work on your still water stripping and your strip sets, your hook sets, all of that here, right here locally with, with bass. That way, when you get up to Alaska, you're ready to go. Oh, you're, yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more. It's just, yeah, I, I do a lot of it. I, I think it's enjoyable. And, you know, one thing this time of the year, then the spring, we have a lot of lakes on the eastern Colorado that the crappies come up shallow. 
And uh, I'm usually one that says I fly fish because it's fun and I enjoy it, not because it's necessarily a better way of catching fish. There's usually other ways that could be better, but fly fishing is more enjoyable in some settings. But with the crappies up shallow, um, being able to suspend that buggy fly just a foot or two below the water and cast your line up towards the shore, up towards the brush, um, you can keep that in the strike zone for crappies forever. It can be just a phenomenal presentation. Absolutely. And, um, and that's, in fact, I think it's almost easier, as you started alluded to, in some ways. If it's calm out, uh, shallow crappies are easy to trick on a small minnow pattern of some sort, a little tiny clouser minnow, uh, like an inch-long clouser minnow, or some sort of a little subtle minnow fly that sinks very slowly. Very easy way to trick crappies. Uh, very easy way to trick crappies, actually, this time of year. And, uh, and, and it's like I said, it's super fun. Crappies are kind of like cartoon fish in my mind, you know, that we don't really have the growth rates on them around here to harvest them like they do back east or the reproduction rates. You know, you go to Missouri or whatever, and they benefit from having lots of harvest. Here we don't have quite that that uh, productivity level with the crappies, but they're still super fun to catch, and there's lots more of them around than people realize. And I just talked to a gentleman from Parks and Wildlife who runs a stocking truck, and uh, he said they're going to be making rounds around Fort Collins stocking bluegills next week. And uh, they'll literally run around to bluegills in all the ponds around town just to bolster the populations of them. So between the bluegills, crappies, and bass, there's tons of opportunities. And pretty much every pond in town has them in it. And I mean literally every pond, all the gravel quarry ponds, all the neighborhood ponds, golf course ponds, uh, all the retention places. There's, there's fish in almost all of them, and so that makes them close to us. And an and, and opportunity for a quick and easy trip. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I was out checking some of the ponds just before this cold front. Before I left, I was in California this last week tasting wine. It's just my responsibility to do that. You know that's that. A but, gig, Trey. That's a tough yeah, gig, yeah, but, <laughs> but, but before I left to do that, I went and checked some of the ponds. Um, there's a couple in town here where they're all over that you can take this time of the year. If you wanted to take a little kid out, you could take a uh, just a any kind of a spin or spin cast rod, put a little pencil bobber, let about a foot of line go below that bobber, put an unweighted hook, and put a piece of gulp on it. And, and we're going to be doing similar to what we're doing with the flies. And I use that to check the waters. And I couldn't keep the panfish off of that as that slowly sinks, just like what you said with that fly. The bluegills love that slow sink. And then if you give it a pull on the bobber, just like you'd strip the fly line, it comes back to the top and it, it floats back down and they attack it again. Uh, my neighbor, who has recovered twice from leukemia, uh, one of the times when she was recovering, um, she was getting pretty bored, and I gave her a whole bunch of fly tying equipment. So she got into tying flies, and she really got into it, and she couldn't wait to go catch a fish on a fly that she had tied. So I sent her to one of those ponds, never fly fished before, with the flies she tied, and she caught bluegills immediately. Talk about rewarding, but it just shows you how accessible it is. Yeah, absolutely. And your comment about the bobber and the slow sink on the spinning rod, the floating fly line is the same. And I didn't really mention the fly line, but I recommend doing it with a floating line, not a sink tip. I think there's some people that intuitively want to go to a sinking line. But I prefer the floating line because for a couple of reasons. One, it becomes my strike indicator. I can watch the front of the line, particularly with the bass and the crappies. If you can't see them, they'll grab that fly and they'll pull the line. You'll see it right away because it's in standing water. It's not like being in a river. So 
So the, the watching the front of the fly line that's floating becomes your strike indicator for one. And for two, it holds the, the bait up. So a shorter leader, as it sinks slowly down, when you strip it, that, that fly is going to jump up. It's going to go to the surface because the fly line's floating, and then it's going to sink. So you're going to get a jigging-type motion out of it rather than a horizontal, linear-type retrieve. And that's really what you want because I have to tell you this, Terry, it's the fall that tricks most fish. It's the, 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 the fly as it's sinking that's going to get you more bites than anything else, and that's the same with a lot of different lures. And uh, and that's what you want. So by having the floating fly line, which everybody has, a standard weight forward fly line, it's fine. If I'm fishing for bluegills or, or crappies, I probably could do it with a two weight on up to whatever you want. And if I'm looking at bass, I'm probably going to start around a five weight and go up from there. And if it's any of the bass around the real ponds with, the, with a bunch of vegetation, or I want to throw a more specific bass type bugs, like maybe a surface popper, then I'm going to step up to maybe a seven weight and uh, and go that route just for throwing the bigger bug. And that's what my camera guy, close friend Tim Farnsworth, and I are both working on right now. Because we're going to Alaska, we're using the, the big fly rods and, and get tuned up so that when we get up there with the 10 weight, we're used to using it and the big bugs. Because if you're used to throwing a three or four or five weight around the river, it's a lot different when you get a 10 weight and a pike fly. So using a large mouth for practice on a, on a big fly rod talent is, is a good good call. All right, my friend, we are out of time. Uh, uh, where can people find you if they want more information or book a trip? Well, at Fishful Thinker, and we hired a new guy, Jeff Caldwell. You know him. Uh, he's not a new guy. He's just new to working with us. Uh, so we have openings now that we didn't have before. So we'd love to get some of you guys out. Jeff Caldwell is one of the most uh, decorated anglers in our region. He's been a lifelong guide uh, for waterfowl and fish, and uh, we're happy to have him. So he's kind of replacing Ronnie since Ronnie's re- uh, home raising his daughter now. But uh, at Fishful Thinker, they can book there uh, or get a hold of us for questions. Also on Facebook or Instagram, and most importantly, both our podcast and our YouTube channel uh, are at Fishful Thinker as well. We'd love to have folks tune in. All right, my friend, we will talk to you in a couple weeks. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Terry. All right, thanks, Chad. Chad Lachance. <clears throat> hey, before we uh, move on to another topic here, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Peter from All Terrain Landscaping. Peter came out last week. We had, Karen and I needed a few tweaks to our sprinkler system. We needed some repairs, and we needed some adjustments. Couldn't have been more professional and knowledgeable. He just did a great job for us, and turns out he's an avid outdoorsman, loves to fish and hunt. And he's a fan of the show, so hope Peter's listening. Peter from All Terrain Landscaping, he did a great job when we were out here. The runoff in the rivers is probably, as soon as, it's probably going to actually slow a little bit because the weather got cold. But it's, with this added moisture, as soon as the temperatures rise, probably going to see some blowouts. So, you know, you can fish them, but you got to be very specific. The tailwaters, the still water fishing we've been talking about. Follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. We'll repost a lot of these podcasts, and we'll also try to keep you appraised of the upcoming conditions, what's changing, and anything else that's going on in the show. Don't forget to follow The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom on YouTube. Uh, We have... uh, about 160 or something like that, give or take, episodes of our prior television shows, a lot of which were filmed right here in your backyard. So a lot of great fishing information for you there. And don't forget to follow our music our music entity, Wickstrom and Dobrith. We have an 
Uh, an EP that was released at the beginning of the year. It's doing well. It's available on all your favorite streaming uh, outlets, and we're on social media. Just Google uh, Wickstrom and Dobrith. You can find out about that. And now, is Mr. Dan Jacobs in the studio? I am right here. Well, first of all, I missed you last week. You've just been getting pretty cavalier about your time off. Well, you know, I was going to ask you about that because we were up in Steamboat and the reservoirs, uh, and I came back, you know, again, the drive back to, the reservoirs are bone dry, Terry. What's going on? Which reservoirs are you talking about? Well, I don't know what they're called. They're the ones, they're the, the giant ones between basically Silverthorne and Kremling. You know, on that drive up there, on the left-hand side, there's usually these, there's that one there, I don't remember what it's called, but people usually like to camp there. Um, but it's it's empty. It's bone dry right now. Well, there's Steamboat Lake up there, and there's Stagecoach Reservoir up there. Yeah, maybe Stagecoach, but this is on the yeah, way. Not a, on the way. If they may just, have, it shouldn't be bone dry. Maybe one bay of it you're just seeing. It could be down. They haven't started filling it. I haven't heard of any dam work or anything there. So I think it's probably just hasn't received its water allocation. The other thing that's going on on the west side of the mountain, you know, all that water eventually goes to Lake Powell and goes to Lake Mead, which are in dire straits. And they've been pulling water out of the western reservoirs more than usual to try to maintain both electricity production in those big reservoirs in the west and water to people like California. So... Um, although, other than wine country growing the grapes, I don't care if California gets water. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but hey, I got a I got a question for you. Let's talk a little sports here right now. The Avs split at home. I, you know, everybody's on edge because they've the second round has killed them the last couple of years, and they came out barely won in overtime on the first game, and then lost the second game. How are you feeling going them going to St. Louis now? What do you do? They have to win both. Can they get by just winning one in St. Louis? Uh, what, what's the outlook? Yeah, I'm not feeling terribly optimistic. I'm, I guess I'll take a wait and see approach. But it, it it is trending like they have a mental block or something like this is very eerily similar to last year. Uh, not quite the same, but they they blew out uh, the Blues in the first round. Then they go in and absolutely smoked the. Golden Knights seven to one in the first game, and then barely got eked by in the second game, and then never won another game the rest of that series. And it almost seems like they are suffering from a, cri- a crisis of confidence or something like that. Where I just don't know. I, I think maybe they think, well, we are the most talented, but then they just get on the ice and they get beat. But when they get uh, you know bullied around a little bit, yeah, I'm a little concerned. I, I. Uh... You know, they had this would be the third year in a row with a great regular season, and if they don't get out of the second round of the playoffs, it can't be anything but a huge disappointment. Well, I've been arguing with Marilat and everybody. No, the the expectation, they are the best team in hockey. They have been basically for two years. The expectation should be a Stanley Cup championship, and if they – because you just can't keep these teams together for that long anyway. But if they, they stumble the second round again this year, oh, heads are going to roll. Yeah, I agree. Hey, I'm going to wrap this up so you can start your show, but thanks for the conversation. Uh, Stay warm and dry, and we'll talk to you again next week. All right, we'll see you.
All right. We're going to wrap up Terry Wickstrom Outdoors for this edition. You can get us every Saturday from 9 to 11 right here in the fan. As I said, follow us on Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Follow our music entity, Wickstrom and Dobreth, on Facebook and other social media. Tune in every Saturday from 9 to 11 for all your outdoor information. Thanks to uh, Michael and Karen for keeping us on the air. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour and Dan Jacobs Sports on 104.3 The Fan.